Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, ACNC Crime Posse. Welcome back to another episode of All Crime, No Cattle. I, of course, am your Detective Shea Butter, and across from me is my wonderful wife, and it is her episode today, so why don't you introduce yourself? That's right. I am Erin. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. What do you got cooking for us, Erin? Well, today's case is the first part of a two-parter. It took place in McAllen, Texas, in 1960, where a young woman was raped and murdered, And although suspicions swirled about the identity of her killer, the case went unclosed for decades. This is the story of a cover-up, religious doctrine, political intrigue, and a family's 50-year quest for justice. Before we get into the story, let's go ahead and cover our sources. The first is an article entitled Alter Ego by Robert Nelson of the Phoenix New Times. I also used an article by Brooks Egerton from the Dallas Morning News, published in 2004. A Texas Monthly article entitled Unholy Act by Paula Koloff. And a 2020 episode entitled The Last Confession from April of 2016. I also scoured through decades of newspaper articles about this case and used articles from the Brownsville Herald and the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. But the best and most holistic source was The Monitor, the newspaper there in McAllen, Texas. They reported on this case from 1960 all the way to present. So that newspaper is a great single source for information regarding the case through the years. And if you would like to easily access all of these sources, we will have a complete list of them up for you at our new website, allcrimenocattle.com. Yeah, that's so cool, man. I'm so excited about the website and having these sources available for everyone. Yes, so if you go and check there now, we have almost everything completed. I think there are a few things that we're still missing, we're still working on. But the idea will be that maybe within 24 to 48 hours after an episode comes out, we will have um, all of those links updated on the website. So that way, you can easily look up the information that we used to tell these stories. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and begin. McAllen is a town in Hidalgo County. 
It sits at the southern tip of Texas, right on the border of Mexico and the Rio Grande Valley. Today, McAllen has a population of about 150,000 people. But back in 1960, when this case occurred, it was a much smaller town of about 30,000. Back then, it was an agricultural city that grew a lot of citrus and cotton and was crisscrossed with canals that brought water to the crops from the Rio Grande. Today, McAllen is a hub of international trade and is ranked one of the safest cities in all of Texas. But in 1960, the town was rocked by the murder of one of their brightest citizens. Well, I'm very interested to hear more about it because I like uh, old-timey historical true crime stuff. And it's, I know there's been a lot of developments in this case, so oh, looking yeah. forward so to just it. Be, just because this happened in 1960 doesn't mean we have things that just happened last week involving this case. So yeah, we have a lot of information to go through. Very cool. Irene Garza was born November 15th, 1934. Her parents, Nicholas and Josefina Garza, owned a dry cleaning business that eventually became profitable enough for the family to move to the north part of town, which was the nice part of town. This is where the people with money lived and the people were predominantly white. Irene went to McAllen High School, where her and her older sister, Josie, became the first Mexican-American twirlers ever at the school. Irene was also the first Mexican-American head drum major at there. Outside of her studies and school-related extracurriculars, Irene also competed in beauty pageants. After she graduated high school, Irene attended Pan American College, which is now known as the University of Texas Pan American. There, Irene became both prom and homecoming queen and was the first person in her family to get her bachelor's degree. She continued her studies and earned a master's degree. Irene continued competing in beauty pageants, and in 1958, she was crowned Miss All South Texas Sweetheart, the first Mexican-American woman to ever win the title. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. After school, Irene set out to start her career. She became a second grade teacher at Thigpen Elementary School in McAllen. The school was in the poorer southern part of town, and the kids, mostly Mexican and Mexican-Americans, were disadvantaged compared to the northern side of town. It was important for Irene to teach there. After all, this is the area where she had grown up before her parents could afford to move to the other side of town. She wanted to give back to the community, and she even spent her entire first paycheck buying supplies for her new students. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, she was a warm and dedicated teacher. According to the Texas Monthly, she later became the secretary of the school's PTA, a position that she was very excited about. Irene was actually quite shy, and she believed the position would help her gain confidence and break her out of her shell a bit. Irene was described as a stunning beauty who always dressed to the nines and was charitable and intelligent. And above all else, she was known for her devotion to God and her Catholic faith. She was heavily involved in her church and participated in charity work and volunteerism through the church. She went to Mass every Sunday and typically went to confession weekly, sometimes multiple times a week. In fact, she was often teased about how frequently she went to confession, but going to church and being cleansed of her sins made her feel safe and happy. In a letter to a friend published in The Monitor in 1960, Irene described how important her faith was to her and how it had given her strength. Quote, Remember the last time we talked, I told you I was afraid of death? Well, I am cured. I no longer fear death. You see, I've been going to communion and mass every day, and you can't imagine the courage, the faith, 
and happiness it has given me. And on the evening of Saturday, April 16th, the day before Easter Sunday, going to confession was exactly what 25-year-old Irene was planning to do. She had spent the day shopping with her mother, Josefina. And at about 6.45 that night, Irene left her home and took the family car to the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in McAllen to go to confession. Her parents expected her back home shortly thereafter, but were relatively unworried when she wasn't back a couple of hours later. They assumed that she had stayed for midnight mass, something that was not unexpected of her. But as the hours ticked past, Nicholas and Josefina realized that there was something wrong. Irene should have been back home, and she would always call if she had plans to stay out late. After staying up until about 2.30 a.m. on Easter Sunday morning, the family began their search for Irene. Her father Nicholas went to Sacred Heart and saw that their car was still parked about a block and a half away from the church. But Irene was nowhere to be found. Oh no, that's not a good sign. Yeah, really scary. It's your daughter is missing. The car's still there. Nobody has heard from her. Nobody knows where she is. Really scary moment for them. Nicholas and Josefina contacted the McAllen Police Department early on Sunday morning to report that Irene was missing. Thankfully, their fears were taken seriously very quickly, and Irene's disappearance was immediately seen as high priority. Detectives began interviewing priests and churchgoers who were at the church Saturday, hoping that someone had answers and if they could determine a timeline of her whereabouts. A few parishioners remembered seeing Irene that night, standing in line and placing a lace veil on her head, but no one remembered her leaving or anything out of the ordinary happening. The car Irene had used to drive to confession was searched, the keys were still inside the vehicle, and there were no signs of a struggle in or around the car. So it's basically like she's just fallen off the face of the earth. Huh, and she just left her keys in the car, which that might have been typical of people back in those days. I'm not I'm not sure. But... It sounds like that was just something that was, was pretty okay. usual, yeah. After a full day of searching and waiting, Nicholas and Josefina contacted the priests at Sacred Heart Church, telling them that Irene had not been seen since she had left to go to church the night before. They requested to speak to the priest who had taken her confession to see if he had any clues about her whereabouts. They learned that a man named Father John Bernard Fite had been the last known priest to have spoken to Irene that Saturday, and they hurried to the church to speak with him. Father Fite told them that Irene had called Sacred Heart Saturday evening to ask if Father Junius was available for confession. Father Fite had answered the phone and told her that Junius would be busy until later that evening, but that he would be available along with other priests, to take confession. He said that Irene showed up at Sacred Heart just after 7 p.m. while he was still in the rectory, a small building separate from the church where the priests live. Fight said that Irene came to the rectory to request that he take her confession there, outside of the church, because she was concerned that she would be overheard. He said that he sent her back into the church so she could give her confession to one of the priests there, as the proper custom would dictate. But none of the other priests remembered taking Irene's confession in the church that night. Irene's parents asked Father Fight if anything strange had occurred during their conversation that would have made her upset or run away. But Father Fight denied this was the case, and he did his best to calm the distraught parents and sent them on their way. Huh. This is already seeming atypical of how confessions in Catholicism work. 
Yes, because you are right on the money there. And we are actually going to talk about that a little bit more in, in depth. Okay. But if you are Catholic or, or if you were raised Catholic, as you were, Shay, right. you might get a hint of what is wrong with, with what he's saying, yes. what the issue there is. Now, there were multiple hypotheses as to what happened to Irene. Maybe she had ran away with a boyfriend. Maybe an ex-boyfriend upset with her, angry with her, had grabbed her. Maybe a predator had abducted her from the church grounds after she had left to walk to her car. Theories abounded. And as the hours and days dragged on with no trace of Irene, the search for her intensified. Hundreds of police officers and volunteers began canvassing the area looking for Irene, on horseback and on foot. There were still no clues to Irene's whereabouts until Monday the 18th when a single beige high-heeled shoe was found on the side of McColl Road in McAllen and was identified as the one Irene had worn to confession. The shoe was damaged, and the heel tap was missing. What's a heel tap? A heel tap is like the little stopper that, at, that is at the end of a heel. <laughs> oh, it's the little pad at the bottom of the, like, when you have heels. Yeah. The one that touches the surface of the ground. Okay, mm -hmm. gotcha. Yeah, so it's a little scuffed up, a little dinged up. It's got missing parts. So, you know, that's a little something weird, especially when that is the shoe that she wore to confession. Yeah, night. something's happened to that shoe. Yeah. The next morning on Tuesday, a black patent leather purse belonging to Irene was discovered in a field about 300 feet north of where the shoe was found. And farther up still a plastic and white lace head covering that was similar to the one Irene had been seen wearing the night she disappeared. Okay, these are not good signs. Exactly. All items were dry in spite of the heavy rains that had hit the area on Sunday, suggesting that they had been abandoned sometime on or after Sunday night. And remember, she went missing Saturday. So the meaning there is that these items were uh, dumped or discarded 24 hours or so after she was last seen. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Inside the purse was Irene's identification, as well as other belongings known as hers. Both items were checked for fingerprints, but none were detected. With these discoveries, the search efforts escalated, especially in the area where Irene's belongings had been discovered. This was a rural area, thick with brush and mesquite trees and citrus groves, and searchers walked on foot and on horseback through the rough terrain. In total, 70 people from the Hidalgo County Sheriff's Posse took up the search, dozens of National Guardsmen, volunteers on foot and on horseback, skin divers searched the many canals and waterways that surrounded the area, all while airplanes searched the area from overhead. The efforts to find Irene would develop to become the biggest search in the history of the Rio Grande Valley at that point. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty massive search. Yeah, exactly. And thousands of dollars were raised by just people in the city, by businesses, for both reward money for any information about her disappearance and towards those search efforts. So it was very much something that the community was interested in, active with, trying to help out. Where is Irene? Yeah, and is this because of how much Irene meant to the local community as far as her you know, working with a, a school on the kind of the more impoverished side of town and like who she was and what she meant to the area. That's definitely possible. And this is a really small town. You know, everybody's Catholic. So she probably knew a lot of people from both just her job and from going to school there and sure. going to church. So I think that 
And this was 1960, you know, the, uh, a young woman going missing, probably. Well, a beauty queen going missing. Exactly, right? So there's a lot of factors here that really, I think, made people involved and invested in, in what was going on. Interesting. Two days after Irene's purse was found, on the morning of Thursday, April 21st, two people walking to work stumbled upon Irene's body floating lifeless in an irrigation canal on 2nd Street in southeast McAllen. She was about three miles from where the shoe had been discovered. She was still wearing the sleeveless lavender blouse and pleated flowered skirt and petticoat that she had been last seen in, but her blouse was unbuttoned and her underwear and one of her stockings were missing. The upper right side of her face was bruised. An autopsy would show that she had been bludgeoned with a heavy object, raped while unconscious, and then asphyxiated, most likely from suffocation. Oh my god. Yeah. There was no water in her lungs, showing that she had been dead before her body had been dumped in the canal. Because she had been in the water for some length of time, any evidence such as fingerprints, hair, semen, or blood had probably been destroyed, especially when considering the forensic standards at the time. Sure. This, again, it's the 60s, right? So yeah. it's a completely different time where forensic science are concerned. Oh, yeah. And that actually becomes kind of an issue later where people point out that there are pictures in the newspaper of investigators handling some of this evidence without gloves on. Some oh. of them are, are sitting there smoking with a cigarette in their mouth, like while they're, you know, oh, man. touching things. Yeah. So it, it was a very different time. The banks of the canal were searched for additional evidence. And about a mile upstream for where Irene's body was found, authorities discovered an area of disturbance a large tire mark in the mud on the side of the road where a car had pulled over and a shoe print in the mud that appeared to be leading to the water. Remember, we had all of these rains on Sunday, and then we have these imprints in the mud that's been created from those rains. However, neither set of tracks were unique enough to be of much use, and although they took a plaster cast of the shoe print, it was not a good imprint. It was smudged. It wasn't very detailed. The most specific information gleaned was that it could have been a man's shoe from between the sizes of 8 and 11, and that doesn't tell you anything. That's a pretty wide range. Exactly. Yeah. There was also an imprint in the mud that matched the design of Irene's petticoat. So all of this suggested that perhaps they'd found the area in which Irene's body had been put into the water. Uh-huh. In addition, a neighbor living near the location of the imprints provided a statement that around midnight on Easter Sunday, she had heard a vehicle pull up to this part of the canal. She heard the vehicle's door open and then the sound of a trunk opening. Next, she heard a strange noise that sounded like a loud crushing or crinkling noise. She kind of describes it like the sound of plastic or metal. But the woman was home alone. And at the time, she was so frightened by the sound that she didn't look out the window to see the vehicle or the driver. And the reason why this stuck out to her is this was a very rural area. There was like a Sears Roebuck store kind of near where Irene's body was found. But other than that, it was very rural. There wasn't any reason for somebody to be out there. Especially that late. Especially that late at night. Yeah. And it's there's these weird sounds. And so it really freaked her out when she heard it. Sure. And, and that, she specifically remembered what day it was because it was Easter. Yeah. And that helps to to start completing a timeline if, you know, that was the vehicle that dumped her body. Yeah. Now with a murder investigation on their hands, authorities redoubled their efforts to interview churchgoers and priests who had been at the church the night of Irene's disappearance, 
as well as family, friends, ex-boyfriends, and known sex offenders in the area. As the investigation continued, the number of interviews swelled. According to the Monitor, over 500 people were interviewed, and 22 were taken in for polygraph testing within the coming weeks. But everyone they spoke to seemed to have an alibi, and those who took polygraphs passed them. The Second Street Canal, where Irene's body had been found, was searched several times over and even partially drained in the hopes of finding additional evidence related to her murder. That was going to be my question. And since it's a canal, you can drain it, and that would be interesting to dredge it and see if there was anything in there. Mm-hmm, and that's exactly what they did. And near where the body had been discovered, they located two objects. The first was either a candlestick or some kind of candelabra that was identified as being from the Sacred Heart Church in McAllen. Oh, and remember she had that mark on her head where it looked like she had been hit from a a heavy object. Maybe it was a candelabra. That is something we will go into more detail next episode, but I like where you're headed with that. But here's my frustration with this. As as you just mentioned, this seems like it would be a very important part of this investigation. The frustrating part is only a couple of sources even mention this item, and it's either called a candlestick or a candelabra, which are two different things, right? Oh, yeah. A candelabra is much more substantial than just a candlestick. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And at first, I kind of wondered if maybe this object was misreported because it's, it's just not, there's hardly anybody talks about it. And it also seems really important because it's a link back to the last place that she was seen alive, being the church. Shay, you are on fire today. That's right. It would be so important because at this point, investigators were kind of working off this assumption that Irene had been abducted outside of the church. Nothing bad is going to happen to you in church, right? She must have been grabbed as she was leaving and walking back to her car. That would be the assumption. Mm -hmm. But a candlestick from Sacred Heart would have been the first indicator that something had happened to her at the church or by someone involved with the church. Yeah. So I wish I had more information about this. Again, it's hardly talked about anywhere. And that's, that's... it's one of those details that I, you know, I think you and I both come across where you're like, this is really important. Why is there no information out there? It happens in these cases, especially like the older you get. But, you know, as decades pass by, details in the case can be lost or just, you know, not fully reported on, those yeah. kind of things. Or you do yeah. get misreporting. So yeah. somebody might say something and then people just go with it without kind of oh, double yeah. checking it. So Yeah, it's like playing telephone. It just keeps moving <laughs> around. Yeah. yeah. No, so, it was a candelabra. It was a candlestick, blah, blah, blah. Or it wasn't there at all. I mean, yeah. it's very strange. But the second item was definitely found. So let's talk a little bit about that. It was a light green Eastman Codaslide 35 millimeter viewer with a long black electrical cord. So this thing was basically a handheld slide projector. You would get your little slide, you'd put it in there, it would have a light in there and you can flash it on the wall and it would project the slide onto the wall. It was something that could be used inside of the home as opposed to like one of those big bulky projectors that you would see in a classroom or something like that. Okay, and this is just showing slides of like photograph negatives or something or like little bitty... As far as I know, that's a really good question. As far as I know, there must have been no slides actually in it because okay. I didn't see anything about that. How, is it a heavy thing? Like like a heavy flashlight? Like a handheld device? Could it be something else that could have been used as a blunt force object, maybe? It's definitely possible. The item did look new, so it looked like it hadn't been in the water very long. Okay. 
I didn't hear anything about it seeming like it was damaged, like it had been used in that case, but... But it's something strange to be found just in a canal. Yeah, absolutely, okay. yeah. Interesting. Now, obviously, there is no clear association between the codicide and Irene's body. It could have been dropped in the water at any point before or after she was dumped there, right? So investigators decided to publish a picture and description of the device in the local paper, The Monitor, requesting that the owner step forward. Oh. And they got a hit. A few days after the paper was published, a man sent a letter to the police department to claim ownership of the codicide. That man was Father John Fight. What? The very same man to have been the last known person to have spoken to Irene Garza alive. <sighs> wow. So he actually came forward and said that that was his uh, piece of equipment. Yep, that's right. Wow. Okay, well, that seems to implicate him. At least in why is this item in the canal? Wow, I'm interested to hear more about what happens after this. Well, let's pause here and start to talk about John Fight. He had grown up in Chicago in a religious family that wanted him, perhaps pressured him, to become a priest. When he was 16, he was sent to an all-boys school in San Antonio, Texas, where he continued on to college and seminary school. In 1958, he became officially ordained as a Catholic priest and joined the order, the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate. Priests of this order did not just work in a single diocese, but they would move to different areas to help out churches when they were needed. Father Fight came to the Rio Grande Valley area in June of 1959 and moved into a pastoral house that he shared with other priests of his order in San Juan. This was a town about five miles east of McAllen. He was still a student priest, and he also began attending school at Pan American College while he helped out at the Catholic churches in the region. You might have said this, but how old is he at this point? At this point, he's 27. Okay. So he's only a couple years older than Irene was. Oh, wow. In 1960, Father Fight was tasked to help with the duties at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in McAllen during Holy Week. In the Catholic faith, Holy Week is the week before Easter where the faithful remember the life, crucifixion, and death of Jesus Christ, leading up to his resurrection on Easter Sunday. This is a very important religious period within the Catholic faith. There are many significant events and observances during the week, and crowds coming in for Mass and confessions tend to surge during this time. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's, as a, a former Catholic, that, that is definitely something that goes on during Easter. Mm-hmm. And there were only three priests who typically served at Sacred Heart, so they would really need some help during this period of time. Sure. So the only reason that Father Fight was at Sacred Heart Church in McAllen that night was to help with the duties during Holy Week, which involved offering Mass and taking confessions. He was the last known person to speak to Irene alive, and now he's admitted that he owned an item found near her dead body. Churchgoers remembered that Father Fight was at church that evening taking confessions, and no one remembered seeing Irene or Father Fight together. However, multiple witnesses said that there were periods of time throughout Saturday night that it seemed like Fight was not in the confessional, periods of time that the line to his booth didn't move at all, as if there was no one inside. Hmm. When questioned about these absences, Father Fight admitted that he had taken a few breaks that night to go get a drink, smoke a cigarette, that kind of thing. Fight said that he had broken his glasses. He had this bad habit of playing with his glasses while taking confessions, and one of the screws had popped out. 
So at around 10 p.m. on Saturday night, he jumped in his car and drove to the pastoral house in San Juan to retrieve his backup pair. But he had returned by 11 p.m., he said. Hmm. He couldn't just not have glasses while he did confession? It's not like you really need your glasses Apparently to listen. Not. Apparently not. Okay. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was something else about John Fight that troubled investigators and Father Joseph O'Brien, the assistant priest at Sacred Heart. The first time they spoke to him after Irene's disappearance, they noticed that Fight had an injury to his hand. It looked like scratch marks. But Fight explained this away, saying that when he arrived at the pastoral house to get his glasses, he realized he didn't have a key to the house. He ended up climbing in through a second-story window, which is how he cut up his hand, he explained. So, you know, he has an answer for everything. Why he might be missing for periods of time on Saturday night, why he has this injury, etc. But does he have anyone to corroborate this alibi? Was there anyone at that pastoral house that could say, yeah, he did come by and get his extra pair of glasses? I don't believe so, no. Hmm. I think there was nobody home. Okay. And in fact, between Saturday night and Sunday night... Fight had made several excuses to leave the church to run back to the pastoral house or to otherwise be away from the church. He wanted a change of clothes. He wanted to go get his glasses fixed. All of these excuses to be absent for periods of time over this weekend. On June 14th, Father Fight gave another statement to the police, according to the Brownsville Herald. And he changes his story from the one he told investigators and Irene's parents originally. Now, he said that Irene didn't just request politely for Fight to take her confession in the rectory, but that she was actually very pushy and demanding about it, which annoyed him because he felt it was very selfish on her part. They were so busy during this weekend. There were all of these people who were waiting in line for confession, and she was trying to cut in line. And so it bothered him. But he said when he tried to turn her away, she became very upset and began crying. He decided to oblige her and agreed to hear her confession there at the rectory. Afterwards, he said he offered counsel regarding her troubles, and she left at around 7.20. He had seen her again later, standing outside of the church, but that was the last time he saw her. So now Fight has changed his story a bit, but that's not the only issue here. You see, confessions within the Catholic Church are considered sacraments between the penitent and God himself, with the priest as a representative of God. As such, the sacred act has a few regulations, and that was even more the case back in 1960. Almost all confessions were taken in a confessional booth or room, which separated the penitent from the priest by a wall or divider. There's a small window through which words are exchanged that makes it difficult for the two to actually see each other. Yeah, it's usually like a screen or some kind of perforation and like the metal that yes. keeps you separate, but you can still hear what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, face-to-face confessions back during this time period were extremely rare and usually only occurred on the deathbed. And remember, Father Fight did not live at the rectory. This was not his home. He lived in San Juan at the pastoral house. 
So for a young visiting priest to bring a young unmarried woman into a rectory, this intimate setting outside of the church, to hear a face-to-face confession was not only extremely unusual, it would have been seen as wildly inappropriate back in 1960. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. That seems extremely rare. Yes. And it also seems strange that Irene, being that she was so religious and from what everybody has said, a, a very kind, wonderful person, that she would have wanted to forsake those kind of regulations as far as confessions go, to be demanding, to be seen, to be demanding, to cut in line in front of everybody. It also sounds a little out of character for her. Yeah. Also, did he, I guess, obviously, the the secrecy of confession, he can't talk about what Irene was confessing about, but it just doesn't seem like Irene from what you've told us in this episode at all. Yeah, I would agree with you. Now, as I previously mentioned, the people at the church the night of Irene's disappearance were questioned to see if anyone knew anything about Irene's movements or what happened to her that night. A few people remembered seeing her here and there at the church, entering the building, adjusting her lace veil, etc. But no one remembered anything out of the ordinary, except one little boy. He was one of Irene's second grade students, and so he knew her well. On Saturday night, he had seen Irene's black patent leather purse sitting in one of the pews at the church. Thinking that his teacher must have forgotten or lost her purse, he asked his parents what he should do. They told him to take the purse to the rectory to give it to one of the priests for safekeeping. The little boy ran to the rectory with Irene's purse and knocked on the door. Father Fight answered the door, and the boy gave the purse to him. And we will remember that this would have been the same purse that was later discovered abandoned in that field. Oh, man. that's el- It's also really interesting that it was a small boy from her class, because like that kind of moment would stick out in your memory. If you saw your teacher at church, and you you had a close relationship with her, and then you saw her purse just sitting in the pew, you would remember something like that. And it's really uh, interesting how we've got that that very clear detail of how the purse moves over to the rectory. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, definitely does not look good. No. Well, shortly after Irene's murder, news broke of another woman who had been attacked at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in the nearby town of Edinburgh. So there are two Sacred Heart churches. There's the one in McAllen, where Irene went to confession at, and this one in Edinburgh, which is a town very close to McAllen. This attack occurred less than a month before Irene's murder. Maria America Guerra was a 20-year-old student at Pan American College who had returned home from school on March 23rd. Maria lived just across the street from the church, and on this afternoon, she noticed a man in a car watching her as she walked into her home. She described the car as a blue and white 1955 or 1956 Ford or Chevrolet automobile. Later, she left her home at around 6.30 and walked to the church to pray. She noted that the car was still there, but she didn't see the man. She entered the church and observed a man sitting in the back. He looked like the man she had seen watching her earlier. But she was in a house of God. She didn't feel fearful of him there. Still creepy. She went to kneel at the communion rail to begin saying her rosary. There was another woman in the church who left soon after Maria entered, leaving Maria and the man alone inside. The man walked to the front doors of the church and looked around, then turned and came towards her. 
he grabbed her from behind and slapped a cloth over her mouth. Maria fell back and the cloth slipped from her mouth. She began screaming and the man tried to cover her mouth with his hand. She bit his finger as hard as she could, drawing blood. He threw her down and fled out the door. Maria ran to the rectory to ring the bell to alert someone to the attack, and she saw that the car was now gone. Maria was able to get a decent look at her attacker and gave his description to the police. She described him as a white male around 30 years old with dark hair and horned-rimmed glasses. He was about 5'8 to 5'10 inches tall and wore a light tan shirt and dark pants. The pants, she said, reminded her of the same type that priests wore. A witness passing by the church also spotted the man and gave a similar description, noting the cloth or towel that he carried in his hands as he hurried away. So are we thinking this was like chloroform or something on this towel or or what he was trying to cover her mouth with? Maybe, or it just could have been he was trying to cover up her screams Mm. by using the towel. That's terrifying. Mm. Yeah, very much. Especially in a place where you're supposed to be... It's supposed to be the safest place on earth for Oh, you. yeah, and like a center of reverence and mm-hmm. holiness and everything. And yeah. Gosh, the last place you would expect some guy to just come up and, and attack you. Absolutely. Like, even though she saw this guy and she was weirded out by him, she was like, I'm in church. There's no- nothing can happen to me here. Sure. And then this happens. Now, investigators saw the similarities between Maria's attack and Irene's murder right away. Both incidents had happened pretty close to each other geographically and both occurred around the same time of day. Both involved a church setting, and both victims were young Mexican-American women. Father Fight fit the physical description of Maria's attacker, and although he was not an official suspect in Irene's murder, many investigators were wrestling with the idea that perhaps Father Fight, a man of God, had something to do with Irene's death. I was also going to ask if he had horn-rimmed glasses. Yes, he did. Oh, okay. Yes, this physical description that Maria gives, it describes a man who looks just like John Fight. Yeah. So the investigators gave Maria a photo lineup, and they included in that a picture of John Fight. Maria positively identified her attacker from the lineup. Which picture do you think that she recognized? John Fight? Yes. And to be clear, Fight had not been labeled a suspect in Irene's murder. Neither his photo or his name had ever been printed in the paper in regards to her murder. In fact, the police at this point had continued making statements to the media that they had no leads at all in the murder investigation. Meaning that she wasn't contaminated when she looked at this lineup. Yes. This was purely based on, uh, on her, the, memory. her memory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. There was no way that she could have been led to pick him out of this lineup. Then, when questioned about Maria's attack at Sacred Heart Church in Edinburgh, Fight admitted to being at the church the same afternoon to visit the priest there. That seems like a weird admission. Like, if, if this is him and he is doing these things, why would you say you had been there? Unless he's trying to take that, like, extreme bluff route of, like, no, it wasn't me. I was there. And, you know, I'm an innocent person. And, like, I don't know. what What is his... Well, here's the thing, at least involving this attack on Maria... He had been there to visit the priest, and he had spoken to the priest at the church in Edinburgh that day. Okay. And the priest who knew each other, because Father Fight had also sort of helped out at this church as well, 
That priest described what Fight was wearing and what he looked like that day when he came to visit him. And he had this same description of this light tan shirt, this dark trousers. He was wearing his glasses, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of makes sense for Fight to admit that he was there because there's another witness who could have placed him there. Okay, maybe that's what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, He also said that he had driven his car, a blue and white 1965 Ford Tudor, and had parked it outside. Uh, Tudor? Tudor, like T-U-D-O-R. Oh, gotcha. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I'd never heard of that car. But, he said, he had left early enough to return to San Juan to ring the bell for adoration at 5.30 that evening, so he could not have been the man that Maria had seen, he explained. And remember, the attack on Maria happened around 6.30 or so. Okay, so Mm -hmm. he's saying he's back in San Juan like an hour before this. Yes, that's what he's saying. But the other priests, when questioned, said that they did not remember Fight being there that night to ring the bell. So there's some real confusion going on here between what he's saying and his alibi and his story versus what everybody else is seeing. Also, how strange would it be if there was another guy dressed exactly like him <laughs> yeah. in the exact same vehicle? Mm-hmm. Who attacks a woman. Yeah, that's a huge coincidence in a tiny town. I would definitely agree with that. But that wasn't all, because Maria had left her mark on the man who attacked her. She had bitten his finger so hard that she had tasted blood. Several of Fight's colleagues remember that Fight had an injury to his left little finger at around the same time. Fight said that he had gotten the finger stuck in a mimeograph machine on May 22nd. This would have been the day before Maria's attack. So a mimeograph machine, it was almost like an old-timey Xerox machine. It had this big drum roll, and it would press ink onto paper from a stencil. And it was often used to make a bunch of copies. In a church setting, it was most likely used for a church bulletin or, or like something like that. flyers or stuff like that. Yes, yeah. exactly. So he said that he got his finger stuck in that drum roll part, and that's how he injured his finger. But the secretary at the Edinburgh church, a woman named Tilly Sanchez, said that Fight had requested a bandage for the finger on the 24th, the day after the attack on Maria. And she had seen the finger herself, and she did not think the injury could have come from a mimeograph machine. In fact, her first question to him was, who bit your finger? She said that it looked like a bite wound and that she specifically saw teeth marks. Wow. Okay, well, it's not looking good for Father Fight. And it wasn't good for Father Fight because he was arrested and charged with the attempted rape of Maria America Guerra. Now, reports and newspaper articles began coming out about Fight's charge of attempted rape and his possible connection to Irene's murder. This was something that reporters were kind of piecing together. I don't know if law enforcement had actually come out and said, oh yeah, well, he's also a suspect in Irene's murder. But again, these similarities were so obvious that people started to question things. Of course, Father Fight denied any involvement, either in the attack on Maria or on Irene's murder. He was quoted in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal saying, quote, My present situation will be wasted if I don't come out a better man. I think my present troubles are something that will help me in the long run. The will of God will be accomplished. Okay. Yeah. It's very weird to me to respond to accusations of, you know, trying to attack and rape a woman uh, about murder. And your response is how it's just going to make you a better person. Of course, it's all false. But this is just God trying you, right? Yeah, just testing you. Yeah. You know, 
really trying to make you see what your faith is like, how yeah. firm your faith mm-hmm. is. And of course, no acknowledgement of what had happened to these two women. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is no mention of these women at all in yeah. his statement. Hmm. Now, it's important to note here that through all of this questioning, the polygraphs he ended up taking that we will talk about next episode, and everything else surrounding the charges against Father Fight, he seemed to have at least one person in his corner. The assistant priest at Sacred Heart Church in McAllen, Father Joseph O'Brien. Some have concluded that Father O'Brien had been appointed by the church to keep a keen eye on the investigation and maybe even report back to the church the details of what was going on, all while making sure Father Fight didn't say or do anything that might jeopardize his case. Yeah, we've seen this before with the Catholic Church. Um, This is something that they've been known to do in other criminal cases or allegations against priests. They have go-betweens that report back to kind of the heads of the Catholic Church that move priests around. And I'm guessing we're going to see Father Fight get moved soon to a different location. Hmm. Well, let's see what happens, Shay. Just because that's, you know, their MO. Well, Father John Fight went to trial for attempted rape, but the jury came back deadlocked at nine in favor of finding him guilty and three opposed. So a mistrial was declared. As the second trial was being prepared, Father Fight decided to plead no contest to the lesser charge of aggravated assault. He received no prison time and was ordered to pay a $500 fine. I'm sorry. He said no prison time and mm-hmm. a $500 fine. Yeah. Even in the early 1960s, that is an abomination. Yeah. Yeah. So he just, he just got a fine, a slap on the wrist. Yes. That he probably didn't even pay for. It was probably (laughs) something that he got help to pay for. Maybe. I don't know about those details. That's disgusting. I would agree with that. And I think that there were other people who would agree with that sentiment too. Certain people in the know, certain individual members of law enforcement and probably others close to the case, they still believed that charges against fight in the rape and murder of Irene Garza would be close at hand. Yeah. But those charges never came. He was never even arrested. No grand jury ever heard the case against John Fight for the murder of Irene Garza. And shortly after Fight pled no contest to the assault charges, the Catholic Church sent him away. Ah, there it is. So, why? With all of this evidence that seemed to point to Fight's involvement in Irene's murder, how could he escape justice? Well, it might just come down to a little bit of politics and power that shielded fight from the law. The Catholic Church, for obvious reasons, did not want a priest to be put on trial for rape and murder. Such a thing would tarnish the church's reputation and leave it open to questions that it simply didn't want answered. And the church had pull. Most of the town of McAllen, the investigators, the prosecutors, the DA's office, were Catholic. Yeah, they They're, probably went to the same church. Probably a lot of them did. So there would have been this strong incentive to make this all go away. We will talk in more detail about this in part two, but there is speculation today that law enforcement and the DA's office worked with the church to avoid prosecuting Father Fight for murder. And in fact, they may have set up an agreement. Have Father Fight plead no contest to the assault charges, and we will not charge him with Irene's murder. Afterwards, the church can do whatever they saw fit with Father Fight 
as long as he left the Rio Grande Valley and never came back. Man. And in a move that parallels what we know today the Catholic Church has done to avoid controversy and abuse allegations, they shipped Father Fight away. Jeez, this case, man. Mm Mm-hmm. So what happens to him after all this? Well, Fight was moved to several different monasteries across the country for rehabilitation, but he didn't stay at any one for too long. Finally, he was sent to a monastery for quote-unquote emotionally troubled priests called the Holy Servants of the Paraclete in Jemez Springs, New Mexico. There, he did well. And after only five or six years, he became the administrator there. What? Mm Mm-hmm. While he was a superior, he had a hand in clearing a man named Father James Porter, who had been sent there for his own transgressions. Father Porter had been accused of sexually assaulting multiple children. But according to Father Fight and other men in charge of his care, he improved, and he was approved to return to his duties in serving parishes around the country. He would later be arrested, charged, and admit to the sexual assault of hundreds of children over the 30 years he served as a priest. So if you've heard the story of Father Porter, John Fight had a hand in the cover-up that prolonged his abuse of children within the Catholic Church. I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, Um, it's a pretty stunning thing. Just look up information on Father James Porter. There's, I mean, (sighs) obviously there can be a six-parter that someone can do just about Father Porter. But it's it's just very interesting how these two cases have intersected where Father Fight was involved in approving him and letting him continue to hurt children. Oh, definitely. But there has to be something about Father Fight where he has some kind of characteristic of social engineering to him to where like he was only there a couple of years and then he became the superior. Yes. And he had been there as a priest who needed rehabilitation yeah. and then got moved to somehow caring for other priests who need rehabilitation. Obviously, that's strange. Which I would say, you know, the the seeking of power to get to that position, the social engineering, there's some real sociopathy going on there. Man, this is interesting Mm. and terrifying and horrific all at the same time. Yeah. Well, his story is not over, though. In 1971, John Fight left the priesthood, married, and settled down in Phoenix, Arizona. He and his wife had three children, and those children blessed him with grandchildren. He lived a good, full life. Even though he was no longer a priest, he was still involved in the church, and he volunteered in church charity organizations. All of this happened while Irene Garza's family remained stricken with grief that their daughter's murder would go unpunished. And for over 40 years, that is exactly what happened. Both Nicholas and Josefina, Irene's parents, passed away in the 1990s, having never seen their daughter's murderer come to justice. But the people of the Rio Grande Valley still remembered Irene Garza and were still willing to fight for her decades after her death. And we will talk more about that in part two of this story. Oh, man. What an interesting story, dude. It's fascinating, and there's so many details in the story, and that's why I said... This just has to be a two-parter to really get into the nitty-gritty because yeah. it's not just Irene Garza's murder. It's everything surrounding it. It's this cover-up. It's This had its fingers go through the community and 
law enforcement and the DA's office and the Catholic Church. I mean, it's incredible just the story of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And to see how it happened and all these different levels, uh, peeling back the onion to show how this one murder can unveil this darker corruption that lays beneath that's, you know, kind of at the heart of a community and yeah. how dark that heart can be. But at the other side of the thing of things, we will also see how people came together to try to right the wrongs. Well, that's so cool. that's there is kind of, a, I guess, a positive light in yeah, this as well. Yeah, because we've seen a lot of villains so far. Yes. And we need to see the heroes come forward. And that'll all be next episode. It's going to be really interesting. Ah, excellent. Well, you did an amazing job. And uh, this is a really fascinating story. I've always heard about this story and never knew any of the details. And I'm so glad you decided to cover it. I am too. Yeah, it's been just super fascinating to go through all of these documents for, you know, 50 years or so to see how this case evolved over time. Yeah, definitely. Well, are you ready for, you know, maybe a little something more uplifting, something that'll make you feel good? Always. All right. Well, I got some good news for you right after this. Woo! You know, life is busy. We're busy with the podcast. We're busy with playing with our dogs and washing dishes. <laughs> That's true. And yep. sometimes you don't have the time to sit down and read a book. Where we can still listen to interesting stories while doing other things. And that's why I really love Audible. Yeah, me too. Well, you know, Audible's been around for a long time. They're one of the best places to go for audiobooks. And I really love Audible. I've been using it for years. Some of my favorite things to listen to on Audible are Texas Monthly. They now have the full archive of Texas Monthly stories, some really great true crime stories available on Audible. And they're read really well by really great voice actors. What I love about it is it saves your place. You can bookmark like where you are in certain content and always come back to it and have it available. You can download it just like a podcast. It's really awesome. Yeah, what's really cool about Audible is you're not just getting audiobooks. You also have access to celebrity memoirs, news, business, self-development, podcasts, all of these different forms of entertainment. And you can download titles and listen offline anytime and anywhere. The app is free and it can be installed in all smartphones and tablets. So if you're interested and you should be, visit audible.com slash cattle or text cattle to 500-500. That's right. Go to audible.com slash cattle or text cattle to 500-500. Go get your entertainment on. Expand your brain meats, man. Listen to a book. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. So this good news story comes to us from ABC 13 News, and it was written by Myra Moreno about a week and a half ago. 
And when I saw this story, I knew I had to use it for a good news on an episode. This is also one of those stories where it starts out kind of sad, but then it ends really good. So just keep that in mind. Well, if you've been following world news these past few months, uh, you probably know that one of the biggest stories that's hit the news have been these large, massive wildfires that have just riddled Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you look at one of the, the active maps of where the wildfires are, it started out in one area, but it quickly became almost the entire extremities of the continent of Australia got hit with these wildfires. It was really intense and just awful. In fact, the fires have absolutely been devastating and thousands of people have been evacuated. And around 2,000 of these homes from people that have been evacuated have actually been destroyed. And around 20 people have been caught up by the massive deadly firestorms and have perished. This is not starting out- I warned you. So much on the good side, but okay. The Rolling Stone actually estimates that there's close to half a billion animals that have perished in these blazes. The whole country has been affected by these fires. However, one of the hardest hit areas has been the southeast uh, region of Australia, specifically the area of New South Wales. This is one of the main areas that is home to probably one of the cutest and cuddliest animals of all time, the koala. Oh, I love a koala. Yeah, who doesn't, right? Well, koalas were already a threatened species as they are very dependent on the eucalyptus tree for their food and where they live, being that they make their home in one tree. But these fires have come through and destroyed the trees in the forest land of New South Wales, and it's been just devastating for koalas. Actually, out of the Rolling Stone, they have a quote that says, Ecologists have estimated millions of hectares of land have been burned by bushfires across Australia following catastrophic fire conditions in recent weeks, killing an estimated 8,000 koalas, or a third of the total koala population in the area. Oh, wow, a third. Yeah, so you have this really threatened species, and then you have these massive wildfires that are coming through and just destroying their habitat and killing koalas. It's been really awful. You may have seen some of the really tragic footage of people trying to rescue badly burned koalas along the Australian roadsides. Yeah. It's just horrific. It looks like Mad Max, like post-apocalyptic, and these people are running out and just trying to, to rescue as many koalas as they can. It's really sad. Well, as this news began to spread, it reached the ears of one young Texas girl by the name of Taryn Ford. She's from League City, which is just southeast of Houston. She said, quote, My mom told me about the animals. It was very sad for me. And her mother, Emily Ford, told ABC 13 News that her daughter really wanted to help. Quote, I want to help. I want to help, Mom. She was almost in tears when she said this to me. And help the koalas? That's exactly what Tiran did. Emily said that she went over everything with her daughter about what they could do and how they could help, like different ideas. They started brainstorming. So they started looking at like fundraising and possibly sending money to an organization in Australia to help with the koalas. And then Tiran developed her own idea about raising money for koalas and she called it Coins for Koalas. And she wanted to do this at her school there in League City. Quote, she started drawing up a plan. She visualized a tree, since koalas live in a tree, And as people would donate, they would get recognized by having their names written on a leaf and have that leaf put in the tree at the school. This this is all from Emily, her mom, explaining to ABC 13 News. 
And the tree actually is now at Bearschlag Elementary, and it's collecting leaves every time someone makes a donation, and it's quickly getting filled up. And to that, Tiran says, I just feel good for koalas. I really enjoy what I'm doing here, and it makes me feel like something's happening. Tiran's parents also set up a GoFundMe account, hoping to raise her big goal of $5,000 for rescuing koalas. This money would go towards the Wildlife Warriors Foundation. Definitely needs donations to make rooms for koalas, get the medicine and the bandages and everything that they need to help koalas to survive this horrible event, but also like remake their habitat after this is all done. Her mom went on to explain, quote, they have a big effort going on right now to expand their animal hospital because they have so many animals that are coming in and not enough room for them. So as every donation comes in, whether it's big or small, Tiran is just one step closer to making her big difference in a part of the world that she has yet to see. And she lastly told ABC 13 News, quote, if I ever go to Australia, I really hope that I can see the koalas. Oh, that is darling. I can't imagine being um, so young and being invested in the plight of people and animals on the other side of the world, you know? I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty incredible that she had this idea. And that sounds like a, actually a really exciting and engaging way to get people to raise money for a cause, having that big visual display of like the tree and it continues to grow as more, more and yeah. more people make their donations. That's really amazing. Yeah, and it's a eucalyptus tree so that yeah. they can grow where the koalas can go back and live. That it's, is awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Cool. And so we can do maybe a link to the GoFundMe page as yeah. well or some other. Yeah, I'll put all the links to the GoFundMe and the Wildlife Warriors Foundation and uh, everything that Taryn set up and the ongoing help for koalas in Australia. And we have a lot of listeners in Australia. Claire Jeans, shout out to her, a longtime listener and supporter of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's one of the many Australian listeners that we have. So they're like our Southern Texans that are down there. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, you know, I got to say you had me in the first half because I was like, when is this going to get happy? I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. sitting here waiting. But no, that's definitely good. It's nice to see people trying to do what they can, even from so far away, trying to help out. And hopefully things will start looking better. Yeah. Australia. Yeah, I know the the wildfires are dying down. It seems like they're they're getting contained and yeah. wrapped up, so that's good. And now it's just going to be the uh, rehabilitation of the ecosystem and uh, I don't know, there's just been a lot of flora and fauna that have been lost to probably one of the worst wildfires Australia has ever seen in history. Yeah, it's been really really devastating for the people and the wildlife there, so. Yeah, any help would go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good job, Shay, and good job to Tyrion. Yeah, let's uh, go out and save a koala. Hello, now it's time for the after show. Before we get started on our Patreon shoutouts, we would like to tell you all about where you can find us online. That's right. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and we also have our own separate Facebook discussion group called ACNC Posse Discussion Group. Come join us and have a good time. You can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast and on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. You can throw us a line at allcrimenocattle at gmail.com. And remember, we have a special website that is brand new called allcrimenocattle.com. And if you have any kind of suggestion for the show as far as covering a story, 
you can go to that contact link and it will give us an email directly to us and put it in a separate folder. That way it's easier for us to find. So please do that. (laughs) Yeah. And also, if you'd like to go above and beyond supporting the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can run over to patreon.com slash allcrimenocattle. Uh, there's a lot of really cool tiers in there where we give you bonus content, ad-free listening, you know, swag, all kinds of fun stuff. And also, if you want to do something free that doesn't cost any money, just run over to iTunes or Apple Music and leave us a five-star review on the podcast. It really helps the show out. It helps us, you know, move up the charts in the true crime genre around the world. And uh, we'd really appreciate it. So with no further ado, let's uh, start naming off some awesome contributors and Patreon supporters for the show. First off, we have, as usual, Lisa Layton, our girl. Lisa! We got Andrew Margerison. Andrew! Serial Killer Sweets. Megan! <laughs> Kate Williams. Kate! Don Maloney. Don! Danny Jordan. Danny! Mickey N. Mick Mick! Lisa Mann. Lisa! Stacy kills his Nitsky. Stace. Nigel. Nigel from New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> Emma Jordan. Emma. Alex Hayes. Alex. And Joy Goodrum. Joy. Thank you, Texas Rangers. You're awesome. We appreciate your support. And remember, Texas Rangers help produce these episodes. So all you guys should be very thankful to your Texas Ranger fellow listeners. That's right. So next up, we got our little deputies that are out there. And these are in order from our oldest deputies to our newest ones. So Molly Smith, Alice Lynch, Ibro Kopic, Gerilyn Carmichael, Karen Parker, Danielle Doyle, The Murder and Such Podcast, Donald Brown, Kelly Roberts, Marianne Connor, Jessica M. O'Neill, Gracie Bosch, Corpus Delicti, The Podcast, The True Crime Fan Club Podcast, Kristen Buford, Angela Johnson, The Strictly Homicide Podcast, Juliana Martinez, Kathy Rambo, The Murder in My Family Podcast, The Moms and Murder Podcast, Amy Davidson, Lillian, Alana Baker, Margaret Phelps, Leslie De La Paz, LaDonna, Angie Coplin, Rebecca with a K, Nikki Preston, Laura Zimmerhansel, a Gabby HV and Jessica Green. Thank you guys all so much. Those are our mini deputies that are out there that are true members of the posse. They're a bunch of glorious people. They are. And next up, we got our lone guns coming at you. Who do you think is number one, Aaron? Been been one of our oldest patrons. We just talked about her. She's from uh, Down Under. Claire Jeans. Yeah, it's Claire Jeans. Or do you think it's Claire Johns? Has she ever corrected us? Uh, she's never corrected us. Let us know, Claire. Is it Johns or is it Jeans? Claire. Claire. Yeah, that's Claire. <laughs> we also have Lauren Miller, The Gone Cold Podcast, Lauren Romaine, Marshall Bingham, Amanda Newman, Anne Nunnally, Sam Marshall, Ginny Cargell, Allison Moon, Amy Derrick, Jeremy Thomas. The Dark Poutine Podcast, Diachondra Hapsari Subagayo, Coral Beish, Pam Sullivan, Patricia Wilson, Rory Williams, Amy McMahon, Laura, Danielle Thompson, Professor Danny, Carol Lubahusen, Quinn Harmon, Dan Clark, Melanie Mendoza, Julia Essen, Erica Barlin, 
Brenda Jernigan, Nicole Nyamella, Brittany, Felix Torres, Amanda Shondell, Megan, Jules, Caitlin, Stephanie Roach, Colette, Brandy Doyebi, Alvin Agana, JD Garcia, Beth Ann Brockenbush, Phoebe Southworth, Aya Dunklin, Casey Miller, Jill Foley, Elizabeth Manning, Sydney Merton, Angelica Cortez, Amanda Garza, Lauren Paul. And that wraps up all of our patrons that we had shout outs coming to you. So next week, we'll, for part two, we'll do uh, the small town sheriffs and uh, back to Texas Rangers, and we'll be done for the month. Woo-woo! Yeah, so thank you guys all for going out and supporting the show. I hope you've been enjoying some of the bonus content we've been delivering over to you guys on the Patreon page. we got more stuff that we're planning to do for you guys, so, uh, you know, keep an ear to the ground. That's right. Let us know what's happening, baby. Baby. <laughs> But that's all I have, Aaron. Do you have anything else? I do not. I got a second part coming. Yeah, you do. I can't wait for it. Can we just do it now? No. No, we gotta right. wait. Mm. But it should be out pretty quickly, though, this coming week. That's what I'm hoping. All right. Well, until then, always remember, the crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.